Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mid-Mid-Masque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. John Scorse's pre- and post-race interviews with trainers and jockeys at Southern District's race meetings are a pleasure to listen to. He has a great knowledge of the racing patterns of horses in the region and the characteristics of more than a dozen racetracks covered by Sky Thoroughbred Central and Sky Racing Radio. In a riding career embracing more than 25 years and almost 1,000 winners, John got to ride on most of those tracks, which gives him a great insight into the way races are likely to play out. In the mid-1980s, when opportunities in Sydney were scarce, John Scorse decided to try his luck in Western Australia, linking up with trainer Wally Mitchell, and that move brought him into contact with the once-in-a-lifetime horse that all jockeys dream about, a powerhouse sprinter who took him to dizzy heights on the Group 1 stage. By 2004, John was 43 and no longer enjoying the grind of wasting and travelling to faraway meetings. He consulted two people before making his retirement official, his late father Jeff and trainer Barbara Joseph, who'd been his greatest supporter for the last 10 years of his riding career. Three years later, Sky appointed him trackside host for the Canberra Racing Club, which was just the beginning. Today, he and co-host China Marston do their best to steer punters onto a winner in the southeast and southern districts region. It's time we caught up with one of Sky's best-known faces and a former multiple Group 1 winning jockey. John's course, great to catch up. John, it's a pleasure to catch up with you as well. Um, you might know this, but I want to get it straight off the top. You're an idol of mine when I was growing up in racing. You're the race caller. Uh, we had a lot of the old vinyl records that you used to make of my brother riding his first winners as an apprentice. Don't go back and that far. We used to play them uh, over and over. And, of course, uh, that's not – was not. I've uh, got to mention, of course, your copy of Little Hondo Grattan. Go, 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 you little beauty. <laughs> I used to give that a caning at home as well. So. Good on you. Good on you. To do a podcast with you is uh, is a real pleasure, John, uh, growing up in racing as I did. Thank you, mate. Well, that's very touching, John, and 
you have taken me back further than I want to travel, though, <laughs> at this stage of life. Mate, I was in the car the other day and I caught a few of your trackside interviews and it occurred to me that you've got a real affinity with trainers and jockeys in your region. You don't get too many knockbacks. No, look, not everyone wants to be on either radio or television. But um, given given how the game is now, you've got to market yourself. And and some of them are good. Some of them are very, very willing with their time. Uh, a lot of the trainers, they've got to promote themselves. And they're very, very great. They're very busy. They've got a job to do. But they, they take the time out to, to try and give their, their thoughts on their horses' chances. But I, I really... Um, what I've missed during this COVID is not being able to talk because as a former jockey and as you touched on, I rode at all those tracks. I understand all the tracks and the starts and some of them are really good to have a chat to and particularly the up-and-coming apprentices that are media shy. Uh, I can coach them along a little bit and mm. just get them to, to relax and, and just give their thoughts. It's I'm in a, a, a great position as an ex-jockey to be able to do these coverages and promote racing and uh, all my people. I call them my people. Of it's course. like uh, um, my areas and my people and my horses. So, mm. um, yeah, look, I, I, that's just what I do. I get to the races. I talk to the punters, the trainers, the owners, the jockeys, committeemen. Um, it's just a, it's just a, a wonderful thing for me to be able to stay in the game after the after the riding was finished, John. When you quit the saddle in two thousand and four, you really didn't have a job to go to, and it took the tragic loss of Tony Campbell to open the door. Now Tony had been calling the Canberra races for a long time and presenting form previews, but he had to suspend those duties when he became very ill. And under sad circumstances, you were asked to help out. How did it play out? Yeah, just as you say, Tony was the voice of, of Canberra and racing down this way for, for many a long year. And he was a great man on and off the course, Tony, and I knew him very, very well. At, um, he had a he had a, a long battle with cancer. And um, look, when he... When he finally passed, there was a there was a void there, and and the Canberra Race Club, uh, via Damien Nafoli and Jeff Bloom at the time, they thought I'd be suitable for it. And as you touched on, I I quit the riding, and I had no backup plan. Mm. Um, I suffered a bit of an injury after I retired, and it was a bit of long rehab with a broken hip. But finally got a chance in two thousand and seven, and off I went. And here we are now. John? Well, you did it with ease, and one by one, other race clubs followed. Yeah, I started off at Canberra, was my only club to do, and um, eventually Queanbeyan, Goulburn, Maruya, then Nowra. Then I finished, then I started getting the Southern Districts work at Wagga and Albury, which is, is a, was a great racing area. And the little tracks like Gundagai, I do a lot of the one a year meetings at, at Leeton and Narendra, which are very, very important to me. Mm. And, um, yeah, look, I now do about 13 or 14 tracks. Um, just recently I've done a bit of Kembla Grange. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I really enjoy doing it. and um, It's quite a busy job nowadays. 
Your co-host is China Marston, a very capable jockey in her own right, but a terrible fall ended her career a few years ago and she too headed into a media role and she gives you great support at all of those venues. Yeah, look, it's been great having China on board and, and someone to bounce off and an ex-jockey she was and, as you say, her career was cut short. She had a horrific fall at uh, Chermit on uh, Derby Day, going, I think it was about six years ago now, but um, the opportunity came for her to, to come and co-host with me and, uh, look, it's been great and, um, look, she, she brings another side of our coverage, which is I think we're a pretty good mix, John. You spent most of your childhood in the Sydney suburb of Ryde with your brother Alan and three sisters. Now, when you were at the very impressionable age of seven or eight, your elder brother was making a very good name for himself as an apprentice jockey. And there's little doubt, John, that Alan Groovy Scorse was your principal source of inspiration. Yeah, he sure was, John. We, we grew up going to the races. Um, I was quite small. I loved my football. I played for Ride RSL. But uh, we found ourselves at whatever city venue there was on the Saturday, uh, watching Alan. Even prior to that, um, the trips to the country, Dad would throw us all in the back of the station wagon and off we'd go to Newcastle. It was about a four-hour trip in those days. And uh, watch Alan have his rides. But when he started having some success, it was, uh, well, we just thought it was Christmas. I run around every racetrack in Sydney telling everyone my brother was a jockey <laughs> and that I was going to be a jockey. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were wonderful times. John, um, back in the great old days, guns in tails, going back all those ways. But mm. there's no doubt that if Alan had been come, become a carpenter or a builder, yeah, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. <laughs> well, Alan spent most of his apprenticeship with Ray Guy at Rose Hill and he actually outrode his claim and he made the decision to base himself at Newcastle once his time was up for the last 25 years of his career, and he never regretted that decision. He finished up with almost 1,300 career winners, a couple of group ones, and he was certainly one of the kings of the coal fields. Yeah, it was a great move for Alan. He had a lot of success in uh, in Sydney, but that move to Newcastle, he found some great horses up there. Manawapoi, Swiftly Ann. Mm. Uh, I remember winning a, him winning a race at Rose Hill with one rain from the two thousand metre shoot on a horse called Princely Sum. Mm. But he had a lot of lot of great success up there, and of course, um, the Stradbroke was just one of the greatest highlights uh, of his career. And he sent the benchmark pretty high for me, John. He certainly did, but uh, you were able to catch up a few years later. Alan became a trainer when his riding days were over, trained about 250 winners, and then a health problem enforced his retirement. Now, I know he listens to the podcast, and if he's listening right at this moment, I'd like to say good day, Groovy, and to your dear wife, Sharon. I hope you're bearing up to life's challenges, and uh, you were certainly a great role model for your brother in those early days. How's he going? Yeah, he's had his battles. Um, he's pretty tough, and uh, look, I think he's embracing the retirement from training. He's um, doing a lot of travelling to 
sales and race meetings and we went to the Melbourne Cup Carnival myself and Al last year. It was an absolute mm. wonderful day. We we plan to go again this year uh, for a few days, but the, the COVID put a stop to that. But mm. yeah, he spent he's a he's a very, very keen golfer. And um, look, he's got great ties up there in Newcastle, and yeah, him and Sharon—they're just enjoying their their time that they work very, very hard to uh, to use. Now, Jono, you had a five-stage apprenticeship. You kicked off with Jack Denham at Rose Hill when he was training a massive team of horses for Stan Fox. He had a glut of horses and a glut of apprentices. You were well down the pecking order. I sure was, and uh, that was that was Groovy's idea. He sent me to Jack's, a lot of horses, uh, great for my education as a rider. I couldn't ride much when I got there, but um, Alan Denham was there, Beaver Schofield, Kim Doherty, and he had a great staff. Mm. Jack was a very firm man, but he, he kept everyone in line. And, uh, look, I, it was fabulous grounding for me, the experience to be able to handle different horses and ride a lot of different horses. Um, look, we lived at Nebo Lodge uh, and we were pretty much kept in check. I think that's something that's missed a lot in, in today's uh, with today's apprentices, John. But, uh, look, I, I couldn't have asked for a better start uh, with Jack. And uh, when, he's, when he had a, a break from Nebo Lodge and went out on his own, uh, I went to Newcastle and did my trials and had my first race ride at Scone. But, I was I ran second to Johnny Wade that day on one of those Pacolban horses. Mm. Um, it might have been Pacolban, Storm or Sky. There was a lot of them. Yeah. But, um, look, I, I really wanted to, to test myself in town. But, unfortunately, weight was always a bit of an issue when the limit was very, very light. I think it was 48 in those days. Yeah. I probably walked around about 49 or 50. So mm. um, it was tough to get opportunities in town, but I did take the chance to go to Ramwick and give it a shot there. Mm. When it became obvious you were fifth emergency at Denham's, you found yourself a temporary spot with a very astute and a very amusing bloke called Eric Sandford at Newcastle. How long were you there? Look, I was there for about eight months. Um, Ecker, he was a very... You, you summed him up. He was uh, <laughs> a, a real character of a bloke. Um, he had some very nice horses. And, um, look, my time there was fabulous. I had my trials. Um, he was very, very good to me, him and his wife, Joan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, later you had the good fortune to gain a start with the amazing Les Bridge at Randwick. Forty years on and this marvel has just trained an Everest winner. He's a freak. He is a freak. Uh, he, a great man, Les. He he was fabulous to me. Um, I might have lost my way a little bit there as a young teenager going to the eastern suburbs, John, but uh, Les was really good to me. As I said, I, I struggled for opportunities because I was heavy, um, but Les did all he could for me. And then it, it was apparent that it was just tough to get the – I had a bad race for my fifth race ride and – um, I had to have a couple of months off, so it just took a little bit of while to get my career going. And uh, through a friend of Alan's, Tommy McAloon, I got an opportunity in Canberra, and that really got me going. At the end of 1979, Les Bridge supplied your first winner. The horse's name was Cazella, 
at Kembla Grange, and I'll bet you can remember every step of it. Yeah, I sure can, John. I, I had a lot to do with Cazella. She was a fiery little girl, and uh, the late, great Jack Thompson, who rode a lot for Les, and he was a big, big help to me when I was starting off. And uh, they found the right horse for me to, to kick me off and put me on Cazella in an improvers at Kembler on a Saturday. And uh, she won with a leg in the air, John. I remember it very, very well. The family were there, sat down and went for my life. Long straight, that Kembler Grange, but I was pretty, <laughs> pretty happy to see that winning post loom up at the end. You were to spend the next phase of your indentureship in Canberra with Jules Desmay who trained his share of winners in that era. You actually lived with the family, John, and that's a big plus for any kid away from home. John, it's it's really important, and uh, I got the opportunity with Jules and his family. I lived at their home at Narrabundra, and I was part of their family, and, and I got some great um, opportunities from Jules with my three-kilo claim in the country, and Look, they were wonderful to me, and and and, and Jules and I every day now. Um, we'll, we'll be going and having a bit of lunch through the week as we always do. Good. But him and his family were, were absolutely fabulous to me. Yeah. Now, John, are my ears deceiving me, or did I just hear Mister Whippy outside your house? Uh, that was just the door opening there, John, <laughs> um, sitting in the car waiting to go to Queen Bean races. <laughs> okay. I thought it was good old Mr. Whippy. I haven't seen him for years. No, he was pretty uh, popular when he turned up in Gardens Avenue at Ryde, I can tell you that much. He chased him all away. <laughs> now, John, your final months as a junior were spent with a bloke called John Rosenthal at Warwick Farm, and John was responsible for your first city win. The horse was called Mourner Lower. He started favourite in a 2,000-metre race, I think at Rose Hill, and you didn't muck about, you won by seven lengths. Yeah, John John Rosie, as, as everyone knew him, he was a fabulous bloke. And, uh, look, he took me on there for my only had – that was when you used to come out of your time when you turned 21. I probably should have got there a couple of months early with the three-kilo city claim, but hmm. I got there and I made the most of what I got. I worked hard and he gave me the chance on Mourner Lower. I've got the video at home, John. It's got to run plenty of times over the years. You called the race and uh, he straightened up and I pulled the stick on him and never let up and he won by seven lengths. It was a real thrill for me. It was my only city winner as an apprentice. You put your head down and your bum up and you were still flailing away 10 (laughs) yards past the post. That's it. Uh, Yeah, it was a a great thrill for for anyone, their first city winner. And it took me a long time to get there, but – I really enjoyed the moment when it uh, when it presented itself. You rode regular winners over the next four or five years, but you couldn't get a foothold in the metropolitan area at a time when there was a glut of outstanding jockeys in Sydney. Now, you were very interested when an acquaintance told you about a job that was coming up in Perth. Who was that acquaintance? Uh, well, look, a guy called Kel Bentley that worked for the Freedmans. I did a bit of work for the Freedmans when they were here and in Flemington, and um, I knew Kel, and Kel was Kel was approached by a guy that spelled his horses there called Brian Nathanson, and he said to me uh, that he, he said to Kel that he was looking for a jockey, and Kel put my name forward, and um, 
look, as you say, there, it was it was a tough gig in in Sydney. It always will be. I've always said if you can hold your own in Sydney, you can hold your own anywhere in the world. Mm. I was riding against the likes of uh, Ron Quinton was the leading jockey, uh, Jim Cassidy, Mick Dittman, Malcolm Johnson. The list goes on and on and on. Um, you know that. Well, Wayne Harris riders. was still around, wasn't he? And Wayne Harris was the Peter Cook. Apprentice. Yeah, Peter Cook, of oh. course. Um, sorry to forget his name, but they were they were great guys to just be around. And they'd been guys that I'd, I'd gone into the jockeys' room when Alan was an apprentice and sat mm. there when they were after the races and just looked at them all in awe. And, and, and ten years later, I'm sitting there next to them, riding against them, and mm. um, you just never know how much you learn off those guys. Just being around them and, and riding with them you find yourself riding a little bit like them. And yes, there's yes. no better education than that, John. Mm. And uh, it was a wonderful time for me. I had some good success, uh, but it was just – the limit was light. I was wasting really hard to ride 49, and uh, the opportunities were scarce. So mm. when the job came uh, arrived at uh, at Perth, um, I jumped at it and, and packed yeah. the bags and – Went over there with my gear and one suitcase. Right, and the trainer uh, with whom you became associated was Wally Mitchell, and you hit it off instantly with Wally and the winners were flowing when he told you about a big laid-back two-year-old gelding he had in the place by a stallion called Arkenstone. Now, the late Keith Watson rode Placid Ark at his first two starts for a win and a sixth in two-year-old races. Then he had a spell, and next time in, you were the jockey. Can you remember the first time you ever sat on this flying machine? John, I only ever worked with him, um, with partners, and they had a huge rap on the horse. He was a big laid-back fellow. He wouldn't have got a second look. Um, Mm Appearance-wise, he looked like he'd been built. He had horrific-looking legs and uh, big, long frame, but the power from behind was, was something else. And uh, I don't think I rode him in track work at all. I think Good. the first time I sat on him was in a graduation stakes on the opening day of Ascot, and uh, he didn't really give you much of a feel. Uh, he was a real big, lazy slomaker, mm. but uh, I'll never forget getting round behind the gates he, he started to – you could just feel him underneath you. He, he just started to, to yeah. switch on. And um, I, I remember my first race ride on him vividly because he stood in the gates with his head down. He didn't move a muscle. Mm. And I thought, geez, this gonna, is this going to jump? Should I be encouraging him a little bit? I just took the punt on what they told me about him. And he began like a jet plane and sat outside the leader with his head on his chest. Mm. And I remember straightening up at Ascot, my first race ride there, and giving him a little dig, and he just lifted off the ground. And, and I, I, I remember it so well, I just went, whoa, mm. we've got something here. Really? And uh, he won quite easily. And I think Wally said to me, what did you think of him, John? Mm. And, and I said, I really don't know. I, I don't know what to think of him. He seemed to seemed to just float. He did it quite easily, and I won on him again after that. Um, mm. And all the conversations were the same. How good is he? I said, mm. I don't know. 
there's still more there. Um, he always looked like he was going to be a blinkers horse, but to just going through his grades in, in Perth while he kept them off him, mm-hmm. and I think that was a master stroke with him. Um, I got suspended. I didn't ride him his last run in Perth, but I can remember heading up to the to the top of the grandstand while he said to me, come up, the owners want to talk to you. And uh, it was a funny conversation. I didn't – I thought I was going up there to, for them to tell me that I was getting the chop off him. Did you? Um, yeah. I, I, I didn't really want to go up and talk to them, but mm. we went up there, we sat down and um, – Now, was this before the Lee Steer Stakes, the Group 3, when yes, Keith, wh- Keith Watson got back on him? He, yeah, the the race I won on him prior was a twelve hundred metre set weight, mm. and uh, I'd been trying to hold him up a little bit in his races, and he I got beat on him a few times in fourteen hundreds, and and Wally said to me, put him back in a twelve hundred set weights, and he drew an inside gate, and he said, John, let him go, mm. let him go, you know, you hold him up, let him go. So I let him go and he broke one nine, one by about six. And that's Gee. the day I went upstairs and uh, with the owners, uh, I, I thought they were going to say, you know, that's it for you. But they actually said to me, you know, do you think this horse can win in the East, um, the Eastern States? Because they had a terrible complex over there about the Eastern States horses coming over there and winning all their big races. Mm. It was rare to take one from Perth to the to Melbourne or Sydney. Mm. They said, do you think he can win in the East? I said, he'll win if you take him there tomorrow. Really? And they said, well, yeah. with that, we're thinking of taking him to Melbourne for the Lightning Stakes Oakley Plate Newmarket Handicap. Would you like to go and ride him? Goodness me. And uh, they were they were thinking that they were taking my, op- my Perth opportunities away, which I just started to really hit my straps and uh, – I, I jumped at the chance. So uh, mm, on the goodness. plane to Melbourne we go. Mm. John, uh, he won that Group 3 when Keith Watson rode him and, you know, only a few months ago I saw the very sad news that Keith Watson had drowned in a boating accident near Broome in Western Australia and the tributes for Keith flowed for many weeks. Good rider, wasn't he? <laughs> He was a good rider. He was a champion bloke, though, John. Um, him and his wife, Lynn, they're also really good to me. I, I got, I wrote a few winners for them. Um, yeah, he did a lot of riding for Wally, and he was a great mate to me when I first got there. And uh, that news, it hit me like a steam train um, when, when I heard the news about passing. Mm. Well, you went with Placid Ark to Melbourne and you looked after him right up until the Group 1 Lightning Stakes. Now, Wally was keen for him to have a look at the Flemington straight course, so he got you to give him a jump out there uh, to have a real good look at the layout, and when you got to the barrier, you couldn't believe the quality of horses in that jump out. John, it was like a lightning stakes. I, I was shocked when I saw them all there. Zip home, campaign king. Uh, there was some really good sprinters in the jump out. And uh, while he was at the sales in Adelaide, I was with the travelling foreman, a guy called Paul Garner at the time. And while he said, put the blinkers on him and see how he goes in the blinkers up the straight and just let him follow a couple up there. Um, we put the blinkers on him. 
My goodness, didn't they wake him up, John? Did they? Uh, did they? He, I, I mm. put him on the uh, uh, the closest to the right, to the inside rail. There was about ten in it, and I planned to just follow them up the straight. Well, he begun like a gazelle, and I never saw a horse the whole jump out. He towed me up the straight in under forty six, mm. and I never let him go. It was an astonishing piece of work, mm. and. Uh, the press were all over me like flies. Who's this horse? What's he done? Because you didn't have the, the form and everything like you did today. They, mm. He was unheralded. They didn't know who he was, but he just towed him up in a jump out. Mm. And uh, I drove to the uh, airport to pick Wally up, and I just couldn't shut up about the jump out. <laughs> and he said to me, how much did he have left, John? And it shocked me because mm. we'd always spoke about how much he used to kick. Yeah. And I said, he had the full kick left. It was like a light bulb moment to even me. Good, and man. I went, my goodness, how good's this horse going? Mm. Well, it's now history that he led to win the Lightning. He beat a very good mare in special. Canny Lass ran third. He was fairly explosive in the Oakley Plate. He beat poor old special again by three lengths. <laughs> what do you think ran third? Only Rubiton. And then came the new market. He won that by a length and a half, beating a good sprinter in Princely Hart, and Rubiton was third. You came down the grandstand rail in the new market. Yeah, John, uh, most people were of the opinion I'd go to the flat side, um, but I'd trialled him twice down the outside, one that I mentioned and one before the new market, and he was fabulous on the Sydney leg. And I just felt that... Um, he could come down the outside and I could rate him to suit myself. I really let him tear in the new in the Oakley plate and mm. I knew I couldn't do that down the straight. Mm. But um, I, I, no one knew I was going to go down the outside. And um, Brian York, who was there with Let Me Tell and Bruce McLaughlin, they thought they had a good chance of, of beating him. Mm. And Brian continually asked me where I was going to go. Are you going to go down? Which side are you going? And I said, look, I don't know. Mm. I'm going to talk to Wally and we'll work it out. I wasn't going to tell him. No. And we got all the way to the gates before he said, where are you going on him, John? I said, I'm going down the grandstand side. I said, where are you going, Brian? He said, I'm going wherever you go. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be on your tail. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, John, look, an interesting part about the, the new market I wanted to touch on, and you touched on earlier the – the, the, when I talked to the jockeys and, and the apprentices with interviews and things like that and, and uh, what they might do prior to their races, a lot of them get very nervous. So I tell them the famous story about me lining up to ride him in the new market after I saddled him, after I weighed out and gave the saddle to Wally. You've got that 15 minutes before you've got to wait and they call riders. And sometimes it can seem like a, an eternity. And I weighed out. I went and got a cup of tea in the scales room and I sat down with the book and I was just like staring into space and I started to shake, John. Goodness me. Um, it was starting to really get to me. I'd had a fortnight and not a problem, not a, uh, uh, didn't flinch a hair, but I just couldn't wait to get out there and that sitting down in that uh, tea room prior to going out to maybe come down the grandstand side and be the biggest fool of all time or to win the treble and be the first jockey to do so, I just couldn't hold it together. I started to shake and uh, I couldn't hold the cup of tea in my hand. I had to get up 
and yeah. people were noticing it and I had to get up and I stormed straight back into that jockey's room and just paced around. Once I got out onto the steps you were right. and spoke yeah. to the owners, I, of all the things I can remember, John, mm. I can't remember one word that was said. It was just like a blur. A blur, yeah. But I, I got on the horse and once I was on the on the horse, I was right then. John, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. Just looking at the timepiece here, Jono, and we're going to put on a bit of pace. Now, mate, Placer Dark raced only twice in Sydney. His first appearance was in the Canterbury Stakes, which was then only a Group 2. He led, he trotted in from Campaign King. He had no trouble with Canterbury or the clockwise direction. And then he lined up in the Galaxy at Randwick and he ran into the horse that he'd beaten in the Newmarket, Princely Hart, who turned the tables. Any excuses? Yeah, things didn't go ideal after the Canterbury Stakes for him. He had about a month between runs, John, and uh, there was some rain. He missed bits of work. We planned to gallop him with a partner at the breakfast with the stars, and he scared off the partner, and he ended up doing the work on his own, and Mm. he just got away a little bit. I don't think we saw the best of him in the the, – in the galaxy, and it, yeah. it broke my heart. And Princely Heart sat off him and got him, and he gave him a stone, mm. uh, fifty-seven to fifty and a half. It was going to be a big weight for a three-year-old to carry, but <clears throat> you don't like to dwell on things. But that, as a boy that grew up in Sydney, uh, that broke my heart, John. Of course, I understand. Well, the Galaxy was the last time you rode him. He did go on to win another five races before retiring at Group 2 and Group 3 level. Jockeys like Brendan Clements won races on him. So did Rod Dawkins and Vaughan Sigley. Now, Wally Mitchell had a very good second stringer to Placer Dark by the name of Weston Pago. And he had a good horse's record too. He won nine from 21. You won three races on him, including a Group 1 at Caulfield. It was, I think, in your day called the Marlborough Cup. It's had a few name changes since. Yeah, look, Western Pago was a terrific horse to me and I I won a, a race in Perth on him prior to him going to Melbourne called the Farnley Quality in which he beat a horse called Stylish Lord John. I think it was lining up for 14 or 15 in a row that day and I sat off Stylish Lord and ran straight over him and he ran... I think a tenth outside the Australasian record, which Daybreak Lover held at the time. So uh, he went to Melbourne for the um, Marlborough Cup and he dropped two kilos. He drew well mm. and it was a great thrill getting him into the clear and uh, 
he held off some nice horses. Isoma, our, our Waverley star. There was some mm. some pretty good uh, horses that he beat that day. And uh, that was his only win that preparation. He was unlucky a few times, but he was a, a very special horse to be Western Pago. I only had the three sits on him for three wins, John. And he was your fourth Group 1 winner. Now, John, you spent the last 16 years of your career based in Canberra and you rode plenty of winners, you made a good living despite the inevitable injuries from time to time, but your last decade was most notable because of a wonderful association with the very loyal Barbara Joseph. You two became a a wonderful team and, you know, the last really good horse you got to ride was trained by Barbara, a lovely mare called Ain't Seen Nothing. You won seven races on this daughter of nothing like a Dane, including a Canberra Guineas, a Keith Nolan at Kembla and the listed National Sprint at Canberra. You were very fond of her. Yeah, look, John, um, she probably put about two years on my career, ain't seen nothing. She was a, she was a most underrated mare and my association with, with Barb was, was just incredible work. I, we had a lot of success, and um, Barb seemed to always find the right one. Uh, there'd be plenty of times uh, we'd have multiple runners, but she always seemed to find the right that would suit me. And uh, mm. look, again, I, I felt like part of the family. Uh, we yeah. had some wonderful success, a lot of the country cup carnivals. We won a Wagga Gold Cup. As you mentioned, then we won a Keith Nolan with Ain't Seen Nothing. Yeah. Uh, won a mm. national sprint on her at home, which was a real highlight to me. Um, look, my, my time with, with Barb was just absolutely fabulous. To this day, or she's always going to be my favourite lady trainer, and uh, mm. she was a pretty pre- a, a pretty good horsewoman, as we know. She trained uh, a Doncaster winner with a horse by Taj Rossi, and she trained it out of Bombala. I think that speaks... I think yeah. that about says it all about Barb. She's a, a great judge of a horse, and she really um, she really knew how to get them to win and, and found the right races. We did a lot of travelling, mm. but um, nowadays training in partnership with with Paul and Matt and my son Pat's apprentice to Barb, which is uh, nothing better than watching him in uh, those red and uh, the yellow and red colours, and sometimes the orange and brown, John. Absolutely. And the Doncaster winner you're referring to, trained by Barbara Joseph, was Marimbula Bay, who won the famous race with the late Ken Russell on board. Now, John, you've got good memories of a smart two-year-old cult you rode for your old mate Gordon Benson. You won the Sunnyside Handicap at Randwick on Seaswell, and you later got to ride him in the 1986 Golden Slipper. You ran fifth you were only a length behind, bounding away, and that is great dinner party material. Yeah, I had some great times riding for the bear. Uh, it was a really smart little two-year-old sea swell. I rode him right through his two-year-old prep. <coughs> Pardon me. And he was most unlucky in the Black Opal Stakes, John. I, the photo's on the wall at the club here. I see it every time I go to the races. It breaks my heart. He probably should have won. But... Uh, the bear gave me the chance to ride him in the slipper, and he went really well. He started to get a bit dour at the end of his two-year-old campaign, but it was a pretty good year. Uh, bounding away, of course, won the slipper, and he was only beaten a length. Uh, he went on and won on Sandown Guineas. He's a very good horse. Mm. I actually won 
on some of his progeny, John, later on down here. He stood down here on the south coast. So Mm. uh, he was a great horse to me, some great memories. In 2004, (laughs) at age 43, you knew it was time. The inevitable aches and pains were making their presence felt and you were no longer enjoying it. But before announcing your retirement officially, there were two special people you wanted to tell personally, and that's your dad, Jeff, who's passed on, and, of course, Barbara Joseph. Yeah, look, uh, the time had come, John. I wasn't enjoying it. I had a lot of injuries and um, it just wasn't, I just wasn't enjoying it, and I guess that's the time you've got to call it. And um, we came to the end of the uh, the the year for the licenses to be renewed, and I drove down to Ulladulla and saw Dad, and I told him that I won't be renewing my license. And he said, well, "What are you going to do?" And I didn't have a plan B, but I just said, "Look, I've had enough, and it, it's got to stop now." So I told Dad I went to Nowra and had my last ride on a horse called Swing and Mist at Nowra. We'd been a great horse to me and Barbara. And then the next I went home and I drove down to Bombala and uh, I let Barb know that um, we had a chat about it. And uh, mm. I don't think she was that keen on the idea herself. But, um, yeah, look, we agreed in the finish that, um, yeah, time to call time, John. Well, the supreme highlight since you started your new job was to achieve something that all tipsters aspire to do. You tip the program once. It could be a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but keep trying. Yeah, look, um, it was a wonderful, wonderful time for me. Uh, John, I, I managed to tip the program at Canberra, which is, is never easy. It was only a seven-race card, but always hard to, uh, to try and find the uh, the whole lot of the winners on the day. So uh, that was great for me. And, um, yeah, look, I, I really uh, I really love doing the job I'm doing now. The riding career of your son, Patrick, has given you a terrific interest in the last few years. Early days, you actually managed Pat. You tutored him. You guided him through all the twists and turns of a jockey's life. He's ridden a good number of winners and he's obviously talented. After a, a good beginning... He lost interest for a while, John. Yeah, Pat's quite tall. And, look, he, he, the grind got him a little bit there. He had a, a lot of success. He's up to about 120 winners now. And he, he has got a lot of talent. He's got a good future in the game. But uh, like a lot of jockeys, it just it gets on top of you a little bit. He's only a young man. So um, he took a bit of a sabbatical, I guess they call it these yeah. days. He had himself a few months off and uh, just let the body heal up a little bit. And yeah, he's um, he's back at work now, and uh, I think he's got a future ahead of him. Right, where is he, John? What's he doing? Uh, yeah, Johnny's. Uh, he's actually he's, um, Pat's still apprenticed at the Canberra, mm. and um, he's in his time there now. And uh, look, got a good. Uh, he's got a good handle on his weight now. As I say, he's quite tall, but. Um, Look, if he sticks at it, he's got a great living uh, and a lot of a, a lot of uh, good times ahead. Well, it's been a great ride for a bloke who was inspired by his brother, encouraged by a supportive mum and dad, 
and who finished a 27-year riding career with almost a 1,000 wins, four Group 1s, and the opportunity to ride one of the best Australian sprinters of his generation, the remarkable Placid Arc. John, uh, you're able to share your passion now with thousands of Australians uh, through the resources of Sky Thoroughbred Central and Sky Racing Radio. You wouldn't be changing too much in life, would you? No, John. Uh, as the old saying goes, uh, if you do what, you, if you're doing what you love, you're never, you're not working a day in your life. And uh, look, a, a lot of guys get lost at the end of their careers because you haven't got a lot behind you. I left school at a very early age, and racing was all I knew. So when I gave the riding away to find a, a, a position like this, and I can hang out with all my old racing mates and promote the game that I love. It doesn't get too much better than that, John. John Scorse, thank you for being with us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound and give my best to Mr Whippy. (laughs) Certainly will, John. It's been a pleasure.